Well, let me add one more Merry Christmas Eve to you all. Um, and you say Merry Christmas Eve back to me. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm so glad you're here, whether you're in the room or whether you're watching online. Um, I've been surprised, given how bad the weather is, how many of you are here. And I'm so, so grateful. Um, this is such a very special night. And don't you love it when the kids are involved? It just makes things a little different. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Actually, I, I want to ask you um, how many times you've been asked this question. Here it is. Are you ready for Christmas? So let's think over the last month. How many times would you say over the last 30 days you've been asked the question, are you ready for Christmas? Would it be once, twice, 10 times, 15 times? I mean, some of you are sick and tired of people asking. Maybe it's in a neighborhood or maybe it's in your own home. Maybe it's at a school event that you were at. Maybe you're the one that's been asking everybody, are you ready for Christmas? And uh, I want to ask that question one more time because this is Christmas Eve. So if you're not ready, you don't have much time to get ready. But before I go into explaining that, I I think I'm going to ask the question, are you ready for Christmas? With perhaps a little bit different meaning than some of other people have asked. For instance, I don't mean, is your shopping done? I don't mean, are your gifts wrapped? Is your food prepared? Are your stocking stuffed? Is your Christmas tree prepared? That's not what I mean when I ask, are you ready for Christmas? In fact, I want to go all the way back to the very first Christmas, the original use of the word, because many of us know it's gotten watered down. So when I ask the question, are you ready for Christmas? I'm talking about the first Christmas. I'm talking about the original meaning of what it means to celebrate Christmas. And so when we talk about getting ready for Christmas, that's what I want to talk about. Because in order for us to get ready for the kind of Christmas that God gave us, the birth of Jesus, we've got to first understand what was happening at that first Christmas. So let's turn to Luke chapter 2, the same thing we just read, except I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm just going to read two verses. So would you find Luke chapter 2, and then when you have, stand to your feet. Maybe you didn't bring your Bibles for Christmas Eve. I I get that. So I've got it on the screen. Um, Luke chapter 2, but I've got my Bible. So I want to read just two verses. Here we go. And I'm going to need your help. So while they were there, who's they? Okay, thank you. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We'll just stop right there. You can be seated. And let's start trying to figure out what happened at the very first Christmas by just focusing on this word here first, the word there. While there, we know that's Joseph and Mary now, while they were there, again, help me, where's there? I guess we're not sure of the Christmas story. Where's there? Oh, good, 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 thank you. The reason why I'm pointing this out is because I want us to remember or maybe even learn for the first time that when Jesus was born, he was born far away from home. 
And by that, I not only mean the 90 miles from Nazareth, which is where Joseph and Mary were living, 90 miles, which may have taken them a week. I don't know how far you have gone or will go for your Christmas celebrations. I doubt if anyone has traveled a week, but they probably, because Mary was pregnant, it probably took them a week, 90 miles to get to the little town of Bethlehem. Jesus was born far away from home, but maybe even more importantly, Jesus's home, before he was born on planet Earth, where was Jesus's home? It was in heaven, right? This is a little theology lesson. We talk about God being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God who's revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've heard that phrase, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is Jesus who has always existed as God forever. He always will, he always has existed. And he existed in his heavenly home, but left his home. Jesus was born as a human being. Maybe you didn't know this. When Jesus lived forever in heaven, in his home, he did not have a human body. Christmas morn or Christmas night, the night that Jesus was born, that's the first time he had a body. It's the first time he became a human being. So he left his home in heaven to come to our home. And as we read this story, this manger, this wrapped in swaddling cloths, these simple words, it helps us see that Jesus was born in extremely humble circumstances, which is important because in heaven, he's got everything. I mean, Heaven's amazing, and he's the king of everything. And yet this king came to our home, planet Earth, and did not come to a palace, did not come to some royal estate. He came to perhaps the, one of the most poor places on the planet, the little town of Bethlehem, about the size and maybe even similar to the village that we're talking about giving money to, to, not giving money to them, giving money to build a well for them. Maybe 300, 500, maybe at the most 800 people in a little poor town. That's where Jesus came to be born. The king of everything came to be born to a, a poor family in middle of nowhere. Talk about humble circumstances. But This first Christmas, I also want to help us understand something that has probably been misunderstood for a long, long, long time. I'll explain it. And it's in this verse, verse 7, where Mary wrapped Jesus in cloths and placed him in a manger because, this is the key word, because there was no room for them in the end. Now, you know this story. But this phrase, no room for them in the inn, while a favorite phrase of the Christmas story, a favorite phrase of Christmas pageants, actually may be um, not exactly what you think it is. So let me pause for a second. And um, about a week ago, I got together with my family and we, we played a board game I had never played before. The game is called Telestrations. Anybody ever played this? Can I just see your hand? 
and online and all the campuses. Okay, I had never heard of the game. I never played the game. So I was introduced to it that night. It is a total blast. It might be my most favorite board game now. So here's the idea. You're given every player on the, t- uh, every player, like we had eight, is given a little pad of dry erase boards and they're spiraled together. And these dry erase boards, you are drawn a, a, from a deck a word or, a, or a, a word or a phrase, and you write that down with your marker on the dry erase board. So let's say our word is nativity, okay? So you, you write down the word nativity. Then you, you flip the page to the next dry erase page, and there you draw a picture. You, this is your card, you draw a picture of what you think nativity looks like. So there's, there's our, our drawing. Okay. You only have 30 seconds to do this, so it's not, it can't be that nice. Then you take your dry erase board pad and you give it to the person next to you. They don't see the word nativity. All they see is the picture. You give it to them. They flip the page and now they have to guess what your drawing is. So if they guess a pool party or if they guess a barn or if they guess baby Jesus or Christmas or whatever, that they write that word down, then they give that word to their neighbor who now draws what that word looked like to them. And you do that eight times. It's like the old telephone game where you say a phrase in someone's ear and then they say it to the person next to them, the next to them. And by the time it gets around back to you, it's like, what? Anybody ever played this game? Some, please, somebody raise your hand. Okay. It's the same thing, except you add pictures to the equation. And when we, when we were playing it, it was hilarious what came towards the end as, as it went through all these eight different people. And you're like, that's not what the word was. Now, that's what I think is happening with the story that Luke told us about the birth of Jesus. It's written down very clearly, but as people started painting, and as people started creating Christmas pageants, as preachers started preaching, as people started writing Christmas books, as people started writing children's Christmas books, the story got changed and it, it went different from what the text actually says. So much so that you can hardly find a movie or hear a sermon or read a book, especially a children's book today, that doesn't add a whole bunch of things that are not in the story And this is so true about this phrase, there's no room in the inn. So let me help you see what the the Bible actually says. Because you say to yourself, well, Jim, it's real clear. There's no room in the inn. Yeah, that's clear in English. I'm going to show you a a Greek word that is the, what the word here is, no room in the kataluma. Let's everybody say that together. Kataluma. See, now you know Greek. Cool. Cool. What does Cataluma mean? Well, it doesn't mean in, okay? There is a word for in that Luke, the guy who wrote Luke chapter 2, about eight chapters later in Luke chapter 10, he tells the famous story. I bet you you know this story of the Good Samaritan. The story of this guy who's walking down the road. Jesus actually told the story. He, some robbers beat him up, leave him on the right side of the road to die. People, a couple of people walk by, like, tough luck, dude. One person walks by and says, I'm feeling bad for you. He puts him on his donkey, brought him to an inn. But that word is not kataluma, it's pandokia. Now you know two Greek words. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. So if, if this word is what the word for inn is, 
then what is Cataluma? Well, we've fast forwarded from Luke 2 to Luke 10. Now let's go all the way to the end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. So Jesus is born as a baby in Luke 2. He lives his life, Luke 2 through 21. Luke 22 is the night before Jesus dies. So that's where we are in the story now, 30, 33 years in in the future. And it's the night before Jesus dies, and he's getting his disciples together for the Last Supper. In those days, they called it the Passover meal. And Jesus says to a couple of disciples, go into town, and the first house you see, ask them. The teacher wants to know, where is, there's our word, where is the Cataluma where I may eat the Passover, the Last Supper, with my disciples? So how do we translate this word? In Luke 22, it's translated guest room. So here's my question. If the same word is in Luke 2, verse 7, Cataluma, and here it means guest room, why do they translate it in? King James, Revised Standard Version, other translations. I don't know. All I know is that the word Cataluma does not mean in. It means guest room, which means there's no innkeeper. If there's no inn, there's no angry innkeeper going, get away, stay away. You know, there's no room. That's not, I mean, read any Bible you want. You will not find an innkeeper. It's something people added um, because they saw that word in and they're like, well, there must be an innkeeper. But the misunderstanding largely comes because we don't understand three important things. The first thing is we forget that this is Joseph and Mary coming to Joseph's um, family's hometown. He's not going to some strange town. He's coming to a town that's so small, there's, there's hardly anything there, and either everybody or most of the people there are related to him. So just imagine, you're going to your homestead where your family grew up, and you're bringing a pregnant betrothed wife with you, and nobody will let you in? Just think about that for a second. That's, that's not what happened. So you say, well, wait a minute. I've already heard, heard that my whole life. I know you have. So have I. Let me help you explain. Let me explain. The first thing is that it's Joseph's hometown or his, his ancestral hometown. The second thing is, is that then and now, hospitality is a huge value. It's hard for us to grasp how important hospitality was. You opened your home to anybody, let alone your own family, let alone a pregnant woman who's ready to give birth. So just let this kind of sink in. And remember, what does the text actually say? It says there was no room in the Cataluma. So we still aren't really clear about what do we mean by Cataluma. So here's the third thing I want you to see. And that is that they have... Uh, I've been to Israel and I've seen archaeological digs where they've dug up homes and little towns from 2,000 years ago, the time of Jesus. And they have found a ta- a, a, a home after home after home after home, especially in the poor areas, all laid out like this. Here's the, here's the layout. It's a rectangle, could be big, could be small. And most of them only have this one room, the family room. Some of them have, hey, there's our word a cataluma, a guest room. Every once in a while, if, it's, if they're wealthy or if it's built into the side of the hill, the guest room might be on the second floor, an upper room. 
sounds familiar. But the, the point is, is there's a guest room, and here is where the whole family lives. This is where, this is their kitchen, their dining room, the living room, the TV room. This is where they play pool. This is where they, um, uh, their bedroom. This is where they listen to music. This is where the piano was. Uh, this is where the computer was. I mean, all these things in the first century. This is everything happening in the family room. And so when, like when it came time to eat, you just move things out of the way. You eat right there. When it came time for bed, you unrolled your mat. There's no there's no cribs, there's no beds. There's, you unroll your mat and you sleep with your family right there in the family room. Everything happens there. If you have a guest room, that's a separate room because they were, again, very hospitable. And so when you look at that and you think everything's happening here and this is the way most of the homes were, now imagine you're Joseph and Mary, you come into the town of your own family your uncles, your aunts, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, all the family that you're coming from, and all you got to do is go, hey, remember me? I'm, I'm Joe. Oh, I remember Joe when you were just a little punk or whatever they said, you know. Or, you know, hey, I'm from the line of David. Well, come on in. Probably either the first house or if Joseph knew a particular part of the family, he went to that house. Now, again, forget the, forget the Christmas pageants. Forget the Christmas books for children that are you know, that, that we, even one of them we just read because that's all there is out there. Um, no slam against our people. It's just you can't find a book that, is, that has these kind of things. Um, so again, these archaeological digs discovered these families, homes. And so the Joseph and Mary come. They say in the Bible, there's no room in the guest room. Exactly. The guest room is packed. So What's the next thing they say? Well, what's, what's the Bible say? Ah, it doesn't tell us. But imagine the next thing out of your mouth, your family. I'm sorry, because there's no guest room, find a cave somewhere. Find a stable somewhere. Find somewhere because we're not making room for you here. Can you imagine that happening? No, you can't because that's not the way people were. And that's not what the Bible says, even though that's what you've heard. Even if this was built into a cave, which they built these kind of homes sometimes into caves. I've been to Bethlehem. There's caves all over the place. It's the same layout. So what they would have said was, quote, there's no room in the guest room or there's no guest room available because we don't have one. So live with us. Stay with us. That's what you said. We just all live here anyway. Just get your mat out at night and we'll, and we'll just lay it out and we'll all sleep together because you're family. That's what's happening. And you think to yourself, wow, that, that kind of changes things, right? The Bible says there's no guest room available, but it doesn't say then you can't sleep with us or you can't stay with us. So, so then what would have happened? Joseph and Mary would have stayed with them in their family room. And so whether you translate this no room in the guest room because it's packed or whether you say, we don't have a guest room, there's no guest room available. Either way, there's no room, it seems, for Joseph and Mary. And you say, why was it so crowded? Well, back to the Bible, verse one of this chapter, chapter two, verse one, when you know the story, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. You know this, a census throughout the land. So everyone has to go to their hometown to register. Bethlehem is packed because there's a lot of people born in the line of David. Bethlehem is packed. All the the lodging is packed. All the the guest rooms are packed. All the houses are packed. 
So there's, there's really literally no room. So they said, stay with us. Now, I've left off a couple important things here I want you to see. This is a stairs, three or four stairs, because this area here is a little bit lower than the family room. And there's a darker line here, which stands for like a, a, a half of a wall or a quarter of a wall. Instead of it being all the way up, it's short. Because here, when it got cold, is where they put the animals. This is the animal room, <laughs> the animal space. And so the animals, sometimes, especially if they're lambs, they might be brought in to keep warm, the family warm, but they kept in their space. There's stairs there. There's a, you know, something to keep them from coming up. And what are these two circles here? Well, these are called feeding troughs. I've seen them. They're carved out of the stone right in the ground because this is a little bit lower level. They're right in the ground, so they're just, just right for the donkey or the cow or whatever animals are here to reach over and eat out of the feeding trough. Anybody know the word for feeding trough? I heard it. Say it louder. Manger. So here in the floor, cut out of stone, are the mangers. Now, hear the story. When the time came for, for the, the baby to be born, Mary gave birth to a firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths, since she's right here in the family room, maybe right here, and she laid him in the manger, right next to her. The manger cleaned out a little bit, you know, the feeding trough. It's, it's humble, but it's right there, and that's full of straw where they laid Jesus. It absolutely makes sense. Jesus is born right in the middle of a family, right in the middle of people. So when John tells us about Jesus, he says the word, that's Jesus, became flesh, that is, became a baby, and dwelt among us. Not just in our world, but literally his first night dwelt right among us, right amongst family, right amongst, right amidst the crowded town of Bethlehem. Here's what I want you to see. Not so much the room layout and Cataluma and all that. What I want you to hear is that Jesus was born at a time and a place that was so crowded there was hardly any room for him. And this is very true for today as well. Jesus has come for you and I, but for many people, and maybe this is true of you tonight, I, I don't know. Your life is too crowded for Jesus. And I wanna invite you tonight, would you make room for Jesus? O open up your home, open up your space. He's the king. Make room for him. Well, I'm starting to get ahead of myself because I said that getting ready for Christmas starts with understanding, dot, dot, dot. Then it goes to what? Well, then it moves to understanding who this Jesus is that I'm inviting you to open your life to, your home to. So what does the text say? Well, it says he's a baby. <laughs> While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Oh, that's great, but there's more because this name Jesus since the people of those days knew the meanings of names, we don't do that as much today, but everybody knew the name of Jesus means God saves. So Matthew tells us you are to give him the name Jesus, which means God saves because he will save his people from their sins. Who is Jesus? He's a baby who's a savior. We heard, we heard that in the story. The, the savior is a baby. He's born as a baby, then he'll grow up. But this baby was also Savior. 
Let's, let's continue. The text, text says he gave birth, she gave birth to a firstborn, a son. Jesus was a son, a firstborn. Great, but what else? Well, Matthew also tells us this Jesus who was born is Messiah. So write that down if you're taking notes. Jesus was a son who was also Messiah. These things are important, but these things are really important. One more. Jesus was a visitor. We just saw that. He's not being born in his home town. He, he, that's, you know, that's, that would be Nazareth where his family is from. He's a visitor, but he's also the Lord of all because John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord means Yahweh, means God, means sovereign God. So we've already said this before, but this is God becoming a baby. Savior, Messiah, Lord, also baby, son, visitor. Now, I, I have highlighted these because these are very important titles or descriptions of Jesus. Far more important than the fact he's a baby or a son or a visitor. What do we mean by these words? Well, you see Jesus' name with next to Savior all the time. You see Jesus and Messiah all over the New Testament. Jesus and the Lord. But there's only one place in the whole Bible where Savior, Messiah, and Lord is in the same sentence. The whole Bible, only one place. You know where it's at? Just a couple of verses later, when the angel shows up, you know your story, the angel shows up, we'll talk about this tomorrow on Christmas Day, to the, she to the shepherds and says, today, in the town of David, that's Bethlehem. Here's our three words. A savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord, or Christ, the Lord. There's our three words. That's who Jesus is. If we want to understand who he is, that's who he is. So, so what? He's savior, Messiah, Lord. Oh, that changes everything. Because now we're ready to unveil what the birth of the Savior, Messiah, Lord is all about. And the day that we use to celebrate it actually means to celebrate the Christ. That's what the word Christmas means. It means it's Christ plus mas, which is not mas like in the Spanish language for more. It's in Latin, which means a celebration service, you know, a worship service to celebrate. So there's celebrants at the mass to celebrate Christ, and Christ must is the celebration of the birth of Christ. So now we're ready to wrap this up. How do you get ready for Christmas? Understanding what it's all about, understanding who Jesus is, and then giving him a proper celebration. This is what I want to close with. What would be a proper celebration for one who is Savior, Messiah, and Lord? What's the best way to celebrate Christ's birth? Well, there's all kinds of answers. You're here on church on Christmas Eve. Let me finish with my recommendation. And I really think this is what God would say with all my heart. What's the best way to celebrate Christ's birth? Which starts with opening your home, opening your life, receiving him into your space, your, your life. Which brings me to one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible, where John, a follower of Jesus, in John chapter one says, Jesus came to his own, that's his own family, his own people, his own human race, but his own did not receive him. But some did, because it says, yet to all who did receive him, to those he gave the right to become children of God. 
a part, of the, a part of the family of God. So the first thing I would suggest we do is to receive him as Savior. That, that's the word, Savior. What do I need a Savior for? We all need a Savior because all of us have been infected with this disease called sin. And it's in my life, it causes me to think only about myself. I'm selfish. Same way with you. Sin is the, the thing inside of you that causes you to think about only you. I want it my way. I want things to happen my way. It's self-centeredness, and it ends up hurting people. That's the problem with sin, is that it hurts people, and it hurts the heart of God, and it ruins our world. (laughs) Our world is ruined because of sin. We need a Savior. Jesus has come to save us. Amen? So let's receive him. Could there be a better way to celebrate the birth of Christ the Savior? Well, maybe it also includes his next title, Messiah. What is the Messiah? It's the anointed of God, the anointed one that God sends to lead us, to bring the kingdom of God to us so that we will follow him. So I would suggest the next thing is to follow Jesus as Messiah, and he'll give you a purpose for your life. Because, see, your purpose on this earth is not for you to make money. It's not for you to raise a family that's a good family. It's not for you to provide. It's not for you to be a good person. Your purpose, I mean all of you, every human being, your purpose for existence is to glorify God by following Jesus. That's why you're here. Because that's, this world needs followers of Jesus who will love like Jesus, who will shine the light of Christ in our dark world. You think our world is going to be better because a new, a new president's going to make some laws or Congress is going to make some laws or we're all going to get educated and be nice? No, the only way our world will get better is if we recognize Jesus is the one who can save us. And if we lived more like him, followed him, lived his purpose, our world would change. How about that? That's discipleship, following Jesus. But there's a third word, Savior, Messiah, Lord. Surrender to Jesus as Lord. This is the hardest thing to do. This is to be frank. This is why most people don't surrender their life to Jesus. Why? Let's just be real. Because I want to be in charge of my life. You too, you too. I don't want to surrender. Well, you're not surrendering just to anybody. You're surrendering to the Lord of the universe who made you, who knows what's best for you, and who died on the cross for you. Surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. And you'll, you'll find that this life now that you live is to be lived for him. So there we are. The best way to celebrate Christ's birth, to receive him, to follow him, to surrender to him. And whatever else you want to do for Jesus, without these things, his purpose in coming is in vain. Christmas is not about Santa and snowflakes and shopping. Christmas is about Jesus, the Savior, following him, surrendering your life to him. That's what Christmas is all about. So I leave you with a question. Will you make room for him? And I don't mean... Will you add him on to your already busy life? Will you make a little space for Jesus while you live your busy life? No, what I mean by receive him, make room for him, is that you receive. 
This is what it means to make room for Jesus, to receive him, to follow him, to surrender to him. You can do that tonight. You can, you can do it right now. In fact, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to pray a prayer that, that any of you can pray along with me of in surrendering our life to Jesus. I do this all the time, by the way. I, I live surrendered. I'm constantly saying to Jesus, I surrender to you. I surrender to you. I surrender to you. So maybe you want to join me. Maybe it's your first time. Maybe it's your thousandth time. But living surrendered to Jesus is the only way to live every other day of the year, but it's the best way to live Christmas <laughs> coming up in a couple hours. So after I'm done praying, we're going to light some candles because the Bible says that when Jesus comes into our life, it's like his light shines into us and through us into this dark world. So would you close your eyes with me? Lord Jesus, I address you tonight. Man, you, you are amazing. Very few people saw it when you were a baby. But as you grew up, as you began to teach, and especially when you died on the cross, you, you blew our minds. And now we get it. You've come to save us. You've come as the king of everything, the Lord of all. And so here's the prayer, guys. Jesus we surrender to you tonight. We receive you as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord. We, we surrender our lives to you. And we'll follow you, Lord Jesus. Would you shine your light on, into us so we can be lights in this dark world? Forgive us of our sins. Help us to love people well, like Jesus. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.